Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. Welcome back to another episode of Mike and Mike Theology Plus. Hopefully we've solved some of our audio challenges in this recording session. Um, we picked a new topic for this session. Under protest. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to be talking about the doctrines of sovereign grace over our next several podcasts and recording sessions until we get kind of all of them. Selfishly, uh, I chose this because I'm going to be teaching these for our Sunday school at the beginning of next year. So it's good um, for us to interact and for Michael to tell me where I'm dumb and to be uh, at least molded and shaped and, you know, sharpened by uh, this interaction. Um, so we got to do your Sunday school class, but not mine? Well, yours was on church history, which I, I'm i pretty ignorant of the topic. So we could do it, but it would be just like me going, uh-huh, that's interesting, uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we could, um, but I don't know how beneficial okay. I would okay. be as a, a, side, a side host. Um, but we could, we could do that afterwards, especially after your class, because I'll know more. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I know, especially for some of my friends and family, maybe for those of you who don't even know me, the moment you hear that we're going to be talking about the doctrines of sovereign grace, there is this tense tension that comes in and uh, because this has been and can still be a divisive topic. Um, first of all, that's not what our intent is Is that at the all. guy running away screaming? <laughs> <laughs> not really sure. Okay. Um, yeah. So we don't mean it to be divisive. No. Um, but it is. It can be divisive, yeah. It will. And I guess there will be people that divide along certain doctrinal lines, but you can present what you believe and why you believe it in a non-divisive way. Uh, so we could equivocate on what divisive means. It will be by its nature divisive because people will separate along different theological lines. Right. Um, but kind of like, um, I would say that the gospel is offensive, but I seek to not add my own offense to it. Or... Right. Um, it's commonly said, you know, we can disagree, but let's not be disagreeable. So our, our our point or aim in presenting this is not to pour more gasoline onto the fire, but to take something that we think is important, discuss it, um, but not be name-calling and kind of throwing people out of the kingdom left and right if they don't agree with us. Right, right. And in that vein, I think this discussion of the sovereign uh, grace doctrines will be different than most. Well, I know it's going to be different than most for one big reason, which we're about, we're about to get to. Uh, but first of all, neither one of us are hyper-Calvinist. Nope. And I, I know, at least for my friends back in Arkansas, the presentation that you saw a lot was from a hyper-Calvinist. Having... having um, having known what, what you saw there. 
Uh, and that's not me, that's not Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, Though, I would say that there are people on the other side of this issue who do not make a distinction between regular Calvinists and hyper-Calvinists. I've heard audio quotes uh, by William Lane Craig, Calvin was a hyper-Calvinist, there's no difference between a Calvinist and a hyper-Calvinist, um, and many other people seem to hold that view. Right. So we, we are saying from the outset, we are not hyper-Calvinists, and maybe we should define what well, that is. We, we we should and we will okay. um, after we get through um, some of these other, I think, d- distinctions. Okay. That, so we're not hyper-Calvinists, and I... Personally, I don't know that you do as much, but I personally reason to the doctrines of sovereign grace a little bit different than your typical Calvinists. Um, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's different. Uh, I'm more of a left brain philosophical kind of guy. Mm. Um, Not that you're not left brain, but I know that I think about things differently than most. So hopefully, even if you are a strong non-Calvinist or Arminian, that you'll still at least find at least my approach somewhat novel, even if you may end up disagreeing with it. Um, I have down here that we're not angry. Oh, I'm angry. <laughs> Can't you see? I'm just foaming at the mouth. Yeah, I, this isn't something that I would get exercised over, generally speaking. Now, we were looking at some of the quotes by some of the people that I started to get exercise over there. But it wasn't because I felt like I was being mistreated. I felt like God was being mistreated by the quote. So that kind of exercised me, but anyways. And I would say I'm not angry about this, but it is important to me, Um, particularly when people misrepresent our side or if they misrepresent God and our opinion. Um, that, that is something that becomes frustrating to me. Um, and so it, it's, it's not purely an academic exercise that is just totally left brain, at least for me. I certainly have my emotions involved in this. But I think that we try to do that without bringing anger into it. This doesn't need to be something that anger plays a large role in. Right. Which so. we have seen on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that was a good segue into the so what question. Um, lots of times I've had these discussions and there it seems like there are certain people that gravitate toward these discussions and then those who don't are always kind of on the outside like, why are y'all talking about this? Why does it matter? Can't we just go preach Christ and not try to delve into any of these things? So I, I kind of gave you a warning. I wasn't going to toss this one over to you, Michael. So Last how, time you did this without any warning. <laughs> I know. So how would you answer the so what? Like, So what's the point of talking about sovereign grace versus the free will of man? Why, why does that matter? Why, why should we concern ourselves with this type of doctrine? Um, I want to answer that two ways. On the one hand, can't we just go preach the gospel? Yes. Um, this is not a primary doctrine. This is not something where disagreement guts the gospel. Um, I, I do think there's problems with an Arminian libertarian free will understanding, but those theologians can still correctly preach Christ. And so 
at some level, and I'm rather hesitant to kind of say this, but at some level it doesn't ultimately matter from a pragmatic um, ministry standpoint, right? You, you can go be a faithful minister of the gospel and be a Calvinist, be an Arminian, be an undecided. That, that is not a determinative factor that you have to get nailed down uh, the way you need to have the Trinity nailed down or substitutionary atonement. I mean, there, there are some core doctrines that are necessary, and I would put this outside of that group. On the other hand, I think it's really important because the Bible talks about this stuff. The, the word election, the word elect, it's in the Bible. And if we want to be biblical, if we want to know and present the whole counsel of God, this falls under part of the whole counsel of God. And um, can it be difficult? Yes. Do we have to study deeply? Absolutely. But why would that dissuade us? Why, why would we not want to pursue as much knowledge of the truth of God as we can possibly learn? Would you say that there are any, just like Paul will teach through almost all of his epistles, he'll start out with doxology, the right understanding of theology, and then he'll move to uh, doxapraxy, the right behavior or lifestyle. Most of the time, those are connected. He'll say, so, "You mean orthodoxy and orthopraxy?" Yeah. What did I say? Doxology and doxapraxy. <laughs> I'm not sure the second one's a word. Thank you for for catching it. Yes. Okay. I meant orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Okay. When I was saying that, I was like, I know this is the word, but it doesn't sound right. But I'm going to go with it. <laughs> in fact, my I should have listened to those alerts. Um, yes. Yeah, so I'll he's the little voice in your head. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. So he starts out with ortho. Orthodoxy, right, and then moves to orthopraxy. Yeah. So, is there a in your mind? Is there any orthopraxy that would be associated with the soteriology, which just means the study of salvation? I do think so. Um, again, as a Calvinist, I believe that God in the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us, and so as I've heard James White say, and I think he's parroting other people, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. So um, God is the one that's out there doing the work as we minister. And so to, to some extent, does it matter? Ah. But on the other hand, um, I do think technique or uh, practice is important because I believe that we ought to align ourselves with Scripture as much as we can. And I think how we preach Christ matters. And I think how we understand soteriology will affect how we preach Christ. Um, I believe an Arminian understanding is sub-biblical. But I also believe that people are saved under Arminian preaching. So there, there's a, a tension in there. I think there's a balance that needs to be struck. You know, I don't want to throw Arminians out of the kingdom or say that you're completely disqualified as a Christian minister. That, that's not balanced. That's not fair. Um, at the same time, I don't think that they are uh, fulfilling what they ought to, to the utmost that they ought to be fulfilling it. So that was, I don't know if that was a little bit of a wandering answer. Yeah, well, yeah and just to add to that one danger that I see, and it wouldn't be present in non-Calvinist or even all Arminians, it depends on how strong you are, but if you get kind of further on that scale to Pelagianism or partial Pelagianism, which 
is the belief that we're, we're basically good when we come out. I think that that can have, if you believe that to be true, not only do I think it's not biblical, but it can affect how you minister and how you view the world mm -hmm. and, and policies that you might put in place um, because it, I think it's a, a false view of, of the nature of reality because we are really, really sinful and that sin covers you know all aspects yeah. of us yeah um I, I definitely agree with that my comment was more along the, the lines of uh if you believe in the libertarian free will if you believe that men can be persuaded to believe the gospel in and of themselves um that especially in our culture in america today there seem to be some churches that are kind of going down the path of the seeker friendly movement and doing what's pragmatic to achieve certain goals and my concern is I don't think that immediately uh, always yields negative fruit but there are definitely some churches that you can watch kind of walking down this path to the point that you walk in and you, you can't really tell if you're in the church right. and, um, and at that point what are we drawing them to are we drawing them to Christ or are we drawing them to coffee and entertainment and whatever else they put in there. Right. And, no. and are we kind of tricking them into the kingdom? Right. And, and I would say that that's not a category of people. So and, um, you would agree there's probably people who have gone through that and become true believers. Absolutely. Um, yep. So it's not like we're saying God can't use those. Is it Correct. just the best way would be the, the discussion? And it's important to be faithful as a church. Right. I mean, to, as, a, as a body of believers who gather together, um, do we want to do that well and pleasing to God and bringing Him glory, or do we want to do it poorly? Right. And, and I think that this is the way to understand the Scriptures in order to glorify Him and do it well. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so we are going to make certain assumptions during uh, this series of podcasts. Not that we might not address these in the future, but... These podcasts can't be everything to all different discussions. So what would those assumptions be? Well, first, we're going to assume God's omniscience. Right. We're not going to argue against directly open theism, although it will come up again in this um, uh, one that we're doing today. But we're going to assume open theism is wrong. We may address that at, at, uh, in the future, but not now. Uh, we're also going to... And by and large... People on both sides of this issue agree to that presupposition. Right. Right. I mean, the, the guys that we're going to critique directly here would affirm that with us. Right. Yeah. The only thing, I guess, the reason I want to state our assumptions up front is that if you assume open theism, well, then that might impact a lot of things, including <laughs> yeah. your doctrines of sovereign grace. Right. Um, another thing we're assuming is exclusivity, that... Uh, Specifically, we're not universalists, and we're not going to necessarily try to argue exclusivity. We're going to assume that. Only those who are in Christ end up in heaven. If you're not in Christ, then you end up in hell. And again, our opponents on this topic would affirm that with us. Right, right. So um, this is kind of assumptions as well as common ground? I think it is, but I, limits. the only reason, and I shared this before when we were kind of talking about this, is that one of the guys I listened to who was a limited atonement, which actually goes on to our next one, he was, he was saying, how could you be limited atonement when people can lose their salvation? And I was like, okay, well, that's kind of outside. I know that a full 
five-point Arminian would hold to the fact that you could lose your salvation. I think most, at least of our audience, even if they're not a high Calvinist, that's going to be the last point that they're going to get rid of. I don't know anyone I grew up with who was a non-Calvinist who also believed you could lose your salvation. Right. Um, obviously, there are those out there that we will deal with that in a different um, session or a podcast, but we're not dealing with that today. So we're assuming that that's um, the case. And the last one was we're assuming the Bible is inerrant and without contradiction in the original autographs. So that means that if we find two verses that seem to say different things, we need to work to harmonize those, find what is God actually saying through those two verses. Okay, and so now uh, we do want to go through some terms. Did you happen to print off the terms no. and bring them? Okay, so this may be our first jump cut ever. <laughs> so, so I will go get my phone, and uh, I'll just pull them up on my phone, and then we'll read through them. Okay, and we are we're back. <laughs> so we spent some time making sure these were right. So I wanted to make sure at least that we agree with at them. least we agree with them <laughs> um, so we wanted to read some terms and definitions because not everyone uses the same term the same way mm-hmm. and so that when we're talking there's no confusion what we mean when we say these things so Arminianism not to be confused with the people group Armenians yeah Armenians yeah. Um, but Arminianism is basically the general adher- adherence to the doctrines of man's autonomous or libertarian free will with regards to soteriology or salvation. Big word for salvation. Atonement, um, an act of God the Son that serves as both a propitiation of God's wrath and as an expiation of man's sin. So. We have propitiation and expiation. So propitiation is the removal of God's wrath against sin. Expiation is the removal of the guilt associated with sin. Um, So I don't know if other Calvinists go into this detail, but when we were listening, or at least when I was listening to some non-Calvinists talk about the atonement, they split the atonement up into three subcategories. So to be faithful to their position, we wanted to also give you those categories. So they talk about the uh, application of the atonement, which would be when a person realizes the benefits of the atonement. In other words, they enjoy the state of their sins being forgiven. The extent which we went back and forth on trying to define. Basically, it answers the questions, whose sins actually got paid? Mm-hmm. Which m- you may... Which kind of brings up a different question, too. Right, yeah. Well, but it, you may say, how is that different than application? Well, there are many, I, I guess, I didn't realize this, who believe that everyone's sins were actually paid for on the cross, but the application of that payment is not made until certain conditions are met, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the intent is the desire of atonement. So did, did the father or the son desire in the atonement that all sins would be covered for all people, or was it limited? 
So I guess it, it seems here that you've got the intent, the extent, and the application in the middle. And to simplify it kind of from the get-go, we would say that the intent and the application and the extent are all basically the same. I, well, I could, and I don't think that's how your ordering is how, um, oh, what's his name, Ken Hemphill? Yeah. Or David Allen. That's not what how they would say. They would say intent, extent, and then application. Oh, I wasn't trying to put them in okay. a kind of an order, but it, it would seem like we would say that those the groups who have it applied the extent of the atonement and the intent, those are all kind of different ways to describe the same group. Yes, it, except for I could get behind and you may not be able to, which is fine. I could get behind a dispensational, not dispensation as in covenant theology, but just your state of your disposition. I could get behind someone saying that God's disposition is that all people come to belief in his son, which we'll talk about. Um, like R.C. Sproul, mm. when we, we talk about that verse, right. I think if you put the any as the whole world then the will has to, you have to decide what will of God are we talking about. I could, I would be fine if someone said, this is the dispositional will that God in his disposition desires good things. This is a good thing. And so in that way he desires that it go to all people. So I might, I might split on intent given that understanding of it. Obviously, if we get to a more refined understanding of tent, uh, intent, then I would be limited okay. there as well. Well, maybe if we throw application out and we just compare intent versus extent. Um, I, I would say Calvinists believe that the intent and the extent are the same. Arminians or non-Calvinists or limited atonement people would say that they're the same. Unlimited atonement would say the intent is everybody in the? I, I don't. I don't see how we disagree on the extent of the atonement, because that that seems to be the group. That group defines believers, right? Well, except Tim Barnett would disagree with that because of people who can lose their salvation, or no, he in his. Um sermon that he gave at his church which he linked which we can link below he specifically believes that both the intent and the extent are unlimited in that the father had in mind every single person that the son paid for every single person's sins but only those people who then meet the condition of salvation get the application like the application for for them him and David Allen are like the last step. Hmm. It's the it's what differentiates a universalist versus a non-universalist, um, because only those people who get it applied to them are those who take those steps that are prerequisite to be a believer. So, if you order them intent, extent, and application, he limits it only in the application Correct. state. Traditional Arminians would limit it more in the extent state, and Calvinists 
would limit it starting with the indent. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Calvinism, we've used that term. Um, was it original with Calvin? No. No. <laughs> to claim that you're a Calvinist, does that mean you believe everything that Calvin ever wrote? This is why I kind of have a problem <laughs> with the term, honestly. It's, uh, it, it's shorthand for a very small subset of Calvin's theology, and that just kind of bothers me. Because, um, you know, if you look at Calvin's institutes, they're about a foot wide on your bookshelf. And this is part and parcel of his theology, but it, it certainly doesn't represent everything. And so if you found out Calvin did bad things, would that affect your Calvinism? Well, no, because my Calvinism isn't based on the character <laughs> right. of Calvin. It's right. based on the fact that I think that his interpretation of Scripture is accurate. In this area. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, and not in others, to, to that point. Right. I'm not a paedo-baptist. So I vocally disagree with Calvin on that topic. And so um, I, I go with it because it's shorthand that everyone generally right. seems to understand, but I don't really like the term. Right. And that, that's, we could go around and say, we're sovereign grace guys. We're sovereign grace guys. It, one, it doesn't, know what we're right, talking about. We, it doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> and so we have adopted and we're fine using the term Calvinist or Calvinism because that's what everyone knows. But it just means someone who adheres to the doctrines of sovereign grace. Um, now, there can be distinctions within Calvinism. So a low Calvinist or a moderate Calvinist would be someone who doesn't hold the all five points of Calvinism. Typically, if they're four point, they don't hold the limited atonement. So the five points of Calvinism are tulip, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, uh, Unconditional election. Thank you. Unconditional <laughs> election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Typically, this one that we're discussing is the first right. that people would abandon. Right. And just a point of history, I don't think the five points of Calvinism were even around when Calvin was alive. They were not. Um, yeah. It was Arminianus. How, how, say his Arminius. last name. Arminianus. Arminius. Thank you. Uh, Arminius, who was four when Calvin died. Okay, so yeah. just to set the timelines and why, like they didn't debate; they weren't right. directly interacting with one another. But he was interacting with Calvin's theology. He was and came up with his five points, and then so those followers of Calvin, and at least in this area, came up with their five points to counter the five points of Arminius. Armini, I can't say his name. Arminius. There we go. <laughs> so, Jacobus. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. There we go. So, a, a moderate Calvinist would be someone who's less than five points. A high Calvinist would be a five point Calvinist. A hyper. Or just a Calvinist. Or just a Calvinist. Yeah. A hyper Calvinist. I'm pausing here because you can go in more than one way. Yeah. Traditionally, when I think of a hyper Calvinist, I think of someone who says that you the, the person in time chronologically is regenerate prior to faith and repentance. So in other words, the spirit regenerates you, makes you a new creature, and then sometime after that act, the person comes to faith and repentance. I disagree with that. I know there, there are a lot of good guys who 
agree with that or disagree with me. Um, I don't think that's what Scripture says. Um, another version of hyper-Calvinists are those who believe that God sovereignly determines every single one of our decisions. Um, and while that might be a good discussion for another time, we're not talking about who you marry or what job you take or what college you go to. We're talking about do you come to a, a saving belief in Christ. Right. Um, so that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about all those other decisions. And I don't believe God sovereignly determines those decisions. That might be a full, full board other discussion. But, uh, we're not going to go there today. We're not going to go there today. Yeah, another thing that hyper-Calvinists um, frequently would support is this idea that you can only preach the gospel to someone that's elect, or you should, which ends up being a, a little bit odd because you have to kind of suss out with somebody if you see signs of regeneration and then and only then can you present the gospel to them and they don't believe in missions because um, God can save people any way he wants to right. and if you're elect you're going to be saved there, there, there seems to be a disconnect with the fact that Yes, if you're going, if you're elect, God's going to save you. But He's also elected the means by which He right. makes that occur. So, Greg Kokel has a funny uh, counterexample of this because he talks about when Abraham was promised Isaac, that God was going to sovereignly deliver on that promise. Yet it still required action on Abraham and Sarah's part. You know, that's why Sarah's laughing. Why? Well, well, I have pleasure as an old old lady. Well, at some Measure, yeah, because y'all have to go, you know, do make a deed. baby, do the deed to make a baby. So not only did God it's sovereignly <laughs> not only did God sovereignly determine that Isaac was going to be there, the ends, but He sovereignly determined the means, which was part and parcel with human action. Um, anything else you want to say about hyper Calvinism? Uh, I think that's probably a, a decent okay. So the next one was determinism, which I'm not a determinist. I don't think you're a determinist. We'd have to have a discussion on terms. To yeah, yeah. Maybe a uh, compatibilist. We'd have to determine our terms. <laughs> compatibilist. Um, so we're not saying that Calvinism, mere Calvinism equates to determinism, although there are some Calvinists who are determinist. Um, Non-Calvinist, someone that's not clearly on either side, two-point Calvinist, one-point Calvinist, three-point Calvinist. You could say a one-point Arminian, Arminian two-point. So the, I don't know the, about this category, but I'll go with you on it. Well, I would say... Just somewhere in the middle? I would say like my father probably would be a non-Calvinist. Okay. He definitely wants saved, always saved. Um, he probably holds to at least one other point if we were to have a long conversation with him. But so. So interestingly, and not for today's discussion, once saved, always saved, not the same thing as perseverance of the saints. Okay. Different day. Okay, different, different day. day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's. let's I, I was shocked because I'm going, those. I mean the same thing when I say both of them, but in theological circles, they're different. Okay. Uh, yeah, because I mean the same thing too. Yeah. I mean that a saint will not fail to persevere. I'm, I, I'm with you on that, <laughs> but the people that make up these definitions say okay. that they're not the same thing. Okay. All right. So I think that's all of um, 
the terms and we wanted to, to lay that as a groundwork so that while we're talking it's not confusing even though you may have different definitions for terms at least when you hear us say these mm -hmm. you'll know what we mean by them and so lastly kind of because this is all still kind of framing the discussion we right. haven't really got into the discussion yet um, you may have noticed by what we're talking about throwing back and forth we're not starting with the T we're yeah. not starting with total depravity. That was also under protest. <laughs> I, I think that's the logical place to start, but um, you're buying the hosting for free. So uh, we'll let you pick the topics. Yeah, so this, I think, speaks to, at least at the beginning, my non-traditional way of approaching it. Because to me, both sides of the camp should be limited atonement when properly understood. I think they're... Hopefully there's some Arminians out there listening to this podcast and will go, okay, I am limited atonement. Maybe not. I don't, to me, it's, it's philosophical, philosophically assured that the atonement is limited um, given God's nature. But we, I don't want to have the discussion before we have the discussion, but that's why I like to start here. While we were going through and studying, there were times when I agreed with you, uh, maybe we shouldn't have started here, because I want to I say something that we haven't really argued for right. yet. Yeah, um, that was the difficulty in making the notes. It's, <laughs> I started to write something, I'm like, that is not limited atonement, that's total depravity again. Right, right. So, so at least it helps you yeah, clarify yeah. what you really believe about a limited atonement. Although, I, so I agree with you that everyone does limit the atonement at, at some, like, if, if right. we're thinking about that chain that I made earlier, everybody that's not a universalist puts some kind of a limitation, whether it's the intent, the extent, or the application. If you believe in a doctrine of hell that has anybody in it, you have a limitation on the atonement at some point. Correct. That concludes part one of our discussion on limited atonement and the doctrines of sovereign grace. Please tune in next week for our next installment. You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. 